Welcome to Plodcast Episode 22. Plodcast Episode 22. So in our opening segment here, I want to talk a little bit about a theological topic. Uh, I want to talk about justification and sanctification and confession of sin. Justification, sanctification, and confession of sin. So, in uh, uh, for the, for those who understand the Reformed doctrine of justification, they understand that at the moment of justification, God imputes the righteousness of Christ to the sinner, and this uh, ju- this imputation is is punctiliar. It happens at a particular point in time. So, the day before. The sinner was not justified at a particular moment on the day of his conversion. He was justified. And the day after, he has been justified for a full day now. So he, he crosses a border. He, it's, it's like the defendant in a trial is on trial. And then when the jury comes out and declares, uh, formally, judicially declares, not guilty, his status changes at that moment. He was uh, a criminal, uh, an accused criminal on trial, and he's now acquitted. So our acquittal is like that moment. God pronounces the great not guilty um, uh, sentence over us, the, the, the great not guilty declaration over us. And what that means is that our status changes. Our status changes from condemned and guilty to not condemned, not guilty. Now, I'm not getting, I'm not here getting into all the um, um, explanations of how God is able to do this and still remain just. Uh, That has to do with the atonement and the imputation of our sins to Christ and so on. I'm not getting into that. I'm, I'm wanting to address here a practical problem. The practical problem is this. I know at the moment of my justification that all my sins, everything I've, uh, all, all, all of my sins are forgiven. They are, uh, they're taken away, they're cleansed, they're washed. All my sins, past, present, and future. So <clears throat> let's say I was converted a year ago um, and I get hit by a truck next year. Okay, so I've, uh, I have a Christian life that spans two years. I was justified, and that justification meant that I had the righteous status of Christ with, uh, imputed to me for all my previous sins, for the sins I was committing, committing at the time of my justification, and for any sins that I committed after that justification for those two years of, of my life as a, as a Christian. Now, someone's going to ask, and I think it's a reasonable question on paper. I don't think it's nearly as reasonable uh, in, on the emotional level, but I do think it's a reasonable uh, theological problem to work through. If I, have, if I have a new status, I'm justified, I have the righteousness of Christ imputed to me, then why would a Christian, during those two years of his Christian life before he gets hit by the truck, why would he confess his sins? What's he doing when he confesses his sin? Um, well, he's certainly not taking those sins to God in order to have them removed so that he can be God's son. That's, that is what was accomplished in his justification. 
So if, if I'm justified, if God deals in a definitive way with all my sin at, my, at the moment of my justification, then in, in what way does he deal with sin in any other way in the subsequent course of my Christian life? So um, all my sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven in the moment of justification. Then let's say a week after my justification, I tell a lie and the Holy Spirit convicts me. And I'm wrestling with whether I ought to confess that to God and confess it to the person I lied to. All right, that's the dilemma. And when I'm trying to come up, I'm trying to cook up reasons why I don't need to confess because confessing would be embarrassing and so on. And so I, I, oh, I'm justified. I don't need to confess the lie to the person I lied to and I don't need to confess it to God because all my sins, past, present, and future, were justified. I would say, well, no, that's not how it works. In justification, your sins are dealt with in one way, but they are not dealt with in the only way that sins can be dealt with. Let me say that again. Your your sins are definitively dealt with in a particular way, but they are not dealt with in the only way that sins can be dealt with. So, um, uh, adoption is not the same thing as justification, but it's closely related closely related to it, and it will help us with this illustration. When I was a when I was a kid, um, and we um, had to be disciplined. Uh, we were disciplined uh, in the, the basement. So my dad would take us down to the basement, and there would be an opportunity for the defense, which was usually pretty thin. And my dad would explain our offense to us. He was a very good disciplinarian, very judicious. Um, he was just a righteous dad. And uh, he would explain the sin to us. He would spank us. We would be disciplined for it. We'd be assured that it was all dealt with, completely forgiven. And we were told that as soon as we were prepared to come upstairs and and be pleasant and not have the sulks, we were welcome to do so. Everything was dealt with. Um, as long as we had the sulks, we had to stay down there. But not because our status, not because we were banned, but simply because we were not going to, if, if we were not prepared to be pleasant, then we had to be unpleasant all by ourselves. So you remember, I remember sitting down there, uh, listening to the happy clink of silverware upstairs, um, because these things sometimes happened at the dinner table, you were taken downstairs and disciplined. And so everybody upstairs is, is in fellowship, right? Let's say I'm, I'm a kid down there with the sulks and I don't want to rejoin the family. Am I a member of the family? Yes. I'm a member of the family. In fact, that's why I'm down there. Right? Um, if, if I were not a member of the family, I wouldn't be down there. I wouldn't be being disciplined. Um, the discipline that I'm undergoing, as it says in Hebrews 12, is, a, is an indicator to me that I'm not illegitimate, that, I'm, that I really am uh, a child in God's household. And so I'm down in the basement and that is a reassurance to me that I am, in fact, a Wilson. What justification declares is that you are God's. You belong to God. Your status is secure. You are judicially forgiven. All right? You are judicially forgiven. 
uh, nothing that you've ever done is going to be dug up by God and thrown in your teeth at the day of judgment. Uh, What you were doing at the moment you were converted is not going to be thrown in your teeth at the day of judgment. Anything you might have done after you were converted is not going to be uh, dug up and thrown in your teeth at the day of judgment as a charge against you leading up to a statement, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. So justification means that your status as a child of God is secure. Your status as a not guilty saint is secure. But having had that status secured, let's say you're a month or two into your Christian life and you do something that is particularly shabby, right? It's it's just not honest. It's just not good. It's not, not what it ought to be, right? Uh, God wants to deal with that. Now, he already dealt with it with regard to your your relationship to him. He already dealt with it in one way. But that doesn't mean that there isn't more than one way to to deal with the sin. So uh, he wants to teach me about sin. He wants to teach me about uh, the way my heart works. He wants to grow me up into the kind of person who is fitted for heaven. And so as I um, now, let, let's say I am truly converted, I'm truly justified, and I live for 10 years, uh, but I've got a backlog of unconfessed sin. I'm, let's say I'm not learning, let's say I'm not learning anything about um, how to conquer sin or how, how to have victory over sin and s- stuff. And then I get hit by the truck, not not two years after my conversion, but 10 years after. Um, does that person go to heaven? Well, yes. They, even though they were living in uh, in a cluttered life, even even though they weren't dealing with sins in their life the way they ought to have, right? Yes, they they go to heaven. Why? Because they are gods. Because they are justified. Because your justification can never be improved upon. But can your sanctification be improved upon? Well, yes. Can you learn? Can can you learn? Do do some Christians learn how to deal with sin? in an effective way and do other christians always just sort of take the lazy route and deal with sin in ineffective ways yeah that's true there is um, every christian has an identical justification Uh, one one christian's justification is not better than another christian's justification right that's that again is not the way it works so um if you take the saintliest Christian who ever lived, your justification is every bit as good as theirs because their justification is Jesus Christ and your justification is Jesus Christ. Uh, his justification is no better than yours. But some Christians walk with God more closely. There are people who are mature in the faith and there are people who are immature in the faith. There are people who are particularly holy in their walk and there are people who are not particularly holy in their walk now the person who is holy in their walk is a, is acclimatizing to heaven before he gets there the person who is not the, the person who is not really on top of it and is not really dealing with things and they have a heart attack or they get hit by a truck and they go to heaven they ha- and they have to do sort of an instantaneous sanctification all at once. I, I think of uh, 1 Corinthians 3, um, where um, 
a certain kind of minister is, is said to be saved. He's saved, but as through fire. Uh, you say of some people that they made it into heaven, but with the, their coattails are burning, right? They, 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 <laughs> they just scooted in. So, yeah, are there, pe- are there people who are in that position? And do they have to acclimatize more rapidly? Are, are there, uh, now obviously they're going to heaven. Obviously they're received into joy. They're received into glory. So nothing about it is bad. But I would argue that uh, not as many things about it are as good as they would have been because obedience is always better. Obedience is always better. So, book review. I'd like to, for this uh, episode, I'd like to review uh, or talk about, I don't know how good my reviews are as reviews, but I'd I'd like to talk about uh, Martin Luther's book, The Bondage of the Will. The Bondage of the Will. Now, uh, for those who... um, for those who are not expecting this, they might be surprised if, if they read through uh, Luther on the bondage of the will. He is thoroughly Augustinian, uh, and for half of the uh, equation, thoroughly, to use our language, Calvinistic. He would he would not uh, like being called Calvinistic, but he has a strong and a robust understanding of the sovereignty of God. Now. Uh, the reform. When you look at the difference between the the Lutherans and the Reformed, one of the differences is that um, th- that Lutherans are more likely to reject. Um, and I'm 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 not wanting to use this in a pejorative way at all, but they are more likely to say, um, "The logic be damned. Let's just stick with the Bible." So. So, for example. Uh, Luther very much believes in predestination. If you read the bondage, bondage of the will, he um, it, he affirms the election of lost sinners um, as robustly as Calvin or any of the ardent Calvinists that followed Calvin would. Uh, but he and Lutherans would deny what's called double predestination. Uh, double predestination is uh, saying that... God, if you don't believe in double predestination, you believe that God elects, sovereignly elects those who are to be saved, but that it's a false inference to say that God is rejecting those who are damned or that he's purposively reprobating them. The Calvinists said that if, if, you, if you flip the coin, if heads is up, then it follows that tails must be down, right? If you have a a uh, hundred sinners that God elects and God elects 30 of the 100, then the Calvinist says that mathema- it is mathematically and logically necessary that God did not choose the 70. So if God chose 30, um, he did not choose the 70. Uh, Luther would say, uh, bah, don't bother me with that sort of thing. Uh, I don't. I don't want to logic chop with you. I just want to exult in Christ and exult in God and, and affirm what the Bible teaches. So um, if, if you're not aware of that difference, you might assume, you might make the mistake of assuming that Luther was a Calvinist when he was, um, when he was not. He, but, but he was by no stretch of the imagination was he what later became known as uh, 
uh, Arminian. So um, Luther is answering Erasmus. Erasmus writes on the freedom of the will and is defending free will. And Luther responds to him and just basically throughout the book, you see little pieces of Erasmus flying everywhere. Um, uh, Luther does not handle him gently. Uh, so he just takes his arguments apart. He just uh, demolishes them and he shows that we, we are saved um, by God's sovereign grace, period, plus nothing. And he rejoices in that. He exults in that. And then it's kind of funny in the epilogue, he, he um, sort of tries to patch it up with Erasmus. He says something like, well, you know, um, Erasmus, you're way smarter than I am and you're a lot better at these things than I am. And the only reason I was able to beat you so bad in this debate is that your position, the position you <laughs> picked up to defend was just so stupid. You know, a like a child could have taken you on in this one. So he, he tries to uh, say some complimentary things of Erasmus near the end, but basically he does as uh, a theological demolition job on him. There are many passages in Bondage, Bondage of the Will that are just laugh out loud funny. And uh, uh, Luther knows that God is God. Um, Luther is, I'm, I'm Reformed and not Lutheran, and so I, I believe that if heads is up, then tails is down. And if God uh, passed passed by, if God picked Jacob and not Esau, I, I believe that when we say that God picked Jacob, we can must also say that he did not pick Esau. Um, and so I've got a higher view of logic than, than Luther would have, believing as I do that logic is an attribute of God's. Not, logic is not senior to God. It's not something God created that can be dispensed with. It's, it's, a, it's part of his character. Right reason is part of who, um, who God is. So um, if you are working through all the Calvinist uh, issues, if you're working through the sovereignty of God issues, rather, uh, Bondage of the Will is um, one of those books that um, is going to really repay um, repay you handsomely. I love reading Luther. Luther is just a handful and uh, he, just really rewarding. It's good. So then we are we come now to our segment Hamartiology as as we are pursuing our our studies as amateur homartiologists, right? So sin and shame are closely related. It was not for nothing that Adam and Eve hid when they heard the Lord coming in, in the garden. The word Iskron is rendered as shame in three places. In 1 Corinthians eleven six, the Apostle Paul says that it's a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven. He uses the same word a few chapters later to describe the problem when women refuse to learn from their husbands, seeking to speak in church. 1 Corinthians 14.35 So it's a shame for a woman to have her head shorn. Um, it's a shame for a woman to not um, learn from her husband to speak out in church. And clearly, uh, when Paul says that it's a shame for a woman to speak out in church that way, clearly he's not referring to prayer or prophecy in the church, which he referred to in 1 Corinthians 11.5. So, um, but even there in 1 Corinthians 11.5, it's clear that a woman needs to behave in such a way as to not be a shame. So if 
if a woman stood and prayed or prophesied in the church without her head being covered, then that would be a shame. So uh, Paul says there are measures a woman can take to participate in church, and it's not shameful if she participates in church having taken those measures. Um, but if she doesn't take those measures, if she just sort of launches off and asks a question, she she might find that she's done so in a way that really humiliates her husband. So in Ephesians 5.12, Paul says that it's a shame even to speak of those things which are done by unbelievers in secret. This gives us some sense about how shameful Paul thinks this shame is. Unspeakable actions performed in secret constitute the shame of the unbelievers. It's more than a little ironic that the only kind of shame that many modern Christians feel is shame over the existence of such passages in the Bible. Um, if you are, basically shame is inescapable. Um, it's not whether, but which. It's not whether you will be ashamed, but which things you will be ashamed of. You will either be ashamed of women with their heads shorn or shaven, and ashamed of women uh, participating in the church service the way the apostle says they shouldn't, um, refusing to defer to their husbands, or um, the shameful um, uh, talking about or being entertained by the shameful things that unbelievers do in secret. You will either be ashamed by those things that Paul says that we should be uh, find shameful, or you will be ashamed of the fact that the apostle Paul found those things shameful. You 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 will either be ashamed the way he says to be ashamed or you will be ashamed in your own way you'll either be ashamed of those things that he specifies as shameful and it's um it's the kind of thing that pagans do in orgies it's uh, to, for a woman to be shaved or shorn it's for a woman to humiliate humiliate her husband in uh, in the worship of the church and this is a this is a great this should be illustrative and a great example for us because if um, in, in our day, it doesn't take much at all to get people to be ashamed of the Bible's teaching on role relationships between men and women. Men and women are different. They are assigned different tasks. They are equal in Christ. They together constitute the image of God as Genesis 1 teaches us. But God assigns the men over there and he assigns the women over here and he tells them to do different things according to their, uh, according to their um, uh, sex, according to their, their assigned position. And in our egalitarian age, this is just profoundly shameful. It, it, uh, people are ashamed, preachers are ashamed to speak this way. They would be ashamed to preach through 1 Corinthians. They'd be ashamed to preach through uh, Ephesians because they don't want to be shamed by the world. So if we care about God in his word, we're going to be shamed by, we're going to find as shameful those things that he identifies as shameful. If we don't do that, then we're going to be shamed um, by, we'll be successfully um be made to feel ashamed by the world. Either you're going to be made to feel shame according to God's word, or you're going to be made to feel shame according to the world's word. And so here, 
The shame is to is shaven or shorn heads. The shame is to hum, humiliate your husband by how you speak in church. And, and it's a shame to yuck it up over what the uh, non-believers do in their orgies. So, there it is. God in the time of the sickness. God in the doctor too. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.